All right, we are looking at Matthew. We started the book of Matthew a few weeks ago, and um, we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 3 and then look at chapter 4 together. Starting in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew in verse 13 and then continuing on into chapter 4. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now, would you use your word to bring us to your love? Would you show us your grace here? Would you open our eyes that we might see and our ears that we might hear the truth that you have for us this morning? I pray that you would use me and my efforts to bring your glory to bear here. Father, work in all of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're looking at the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, and I titled this The Temptation of the Son of God. And as we walk through this passage, uh, I want to look at three different things. First, I want to look at the wilderness, and then I want to look at the temptation And then let's look at the victory. So we're going to look at the wilderness, the temptation, and the victory. 
So after Jesus was baptized, which is not just the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is a highlight of Jesus' ministry. Every one of the four Gospels makes reference to his baptism. It is a highlight in his ministry, a, a mountaintop experience, if you will. And from there, he is led into the wilderness to face three temptations. And we need to remember that our chapter and verse markings in our English Bibles, they're not original. When Matthew sat down to write this gospel, he didn't break it up in the way that we see it broken up on our page. And so uh, what appears to us to be a separation between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is not present in the story of Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water, receives this declaration of him being the Son of God and the Spirit descending on him, and then immediately, as the Gospel of Mark says, he is led out into the wilderness. These are connected. They are purposefully connected. And, you know, three reasons why they're connected are three demonstrations of that we can see in the text. Like I said, he receives the Spirit, and then it's the Spirit that leads him out into the wilderness. Second, we see that the voice of the Father says, this is my Son. You are the Son of God. And then what does Satan bring up in the first two temptations? If you really are the Son of God. And then finally, if we just look at these two stories back to back, they are kind of like mirror images of one another. You go from spiritual vitality to spiritual crisis. You go from a mountaintop experience to loneliness in the wilderness. You go from renewal and repentance at the baptism to testing and trying. You go from water to the barrenness and dryness of the wilderness. The contrast is intentional for us to see that these stories are related to one another. They are linked together. Jesus goes from the spiritual high of his baptism, his declaration that he is the son of God. He's driven now into a place of dependence, isolation, and spiritual crisis. That is what the wilderness is. It is a place of of spiritual crisis, a place of trial and testing. But for what? What is Jesus being tested about? Jesus, he was put in the wilderness, led into the wilderness to be tested with regard to his loyalty to the Father over against these temptations from the devil himself. Wilderness is always a place of testing. Back in the Old Testament, when the people of God were first brought out of Egypt, brought out of slavery, rescued from their slavery to Egypt, they were redeemed and rescued, and then where did they go? The wilderness. For 40 years, they were in the wilderness after that spiritual high of redemption. And in fact, 
At the end of those 40 years in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord says to his people, I led you in the wilderness to test you to see what was in your heart. Would you be loyal to me? Would you follow me in obedience? The wilderness is a place of spiritual testing. It is designed by God in order to reveal or uncover the conditions of our hearts. Whether we are in obedience to him or not, whether we are being loyal to him or not, whether we are in communion with him or not, whether we're on mission with him or not, the wilderness is a place of spiritual testing that exposes where we are at with the Lord. It's a test that reveals just what we're made of. It exposes who we are. Back in the ninth grade, in my science class, physical science, we did a lesson on geology. We were learning about stones and rocks and minerals, and I learned of something called the, um, the Mohs hardness test. And the Mohs hardness test is, it's a test to determine what is this rock made of. And the Mohs test goes like this. If you find a rock and want to identify what is this made of, you take other rocks that you know what they are made of and you scratch your rock with it. And depending on if that scratch leaves a mark or not, you know it's relative hardness or strength. And so after all of these tests, you can determine, oh, I have quartz because I scratched it with these other minerals and it didn't make a mark or it did make a mark. It's a hardness test. It's a test to determine the composition of the material. And in a similar way, when we go through these seasons of wilderness testing, they are designed to see what we're made of. They're designed to see what is in our heart. Do we have spiritual strength and vitality? Seasons of great stress and pressure in our life might actually be an invitation from the Lord for self-examination. A time of testing, not of condemnation, but an invitation for repentance, renewal, return. Financial stress can do this. Having difficult children can do this. A rough season of sickness in the household can do this. Marriage difficulties, lack of communication leading to the fracturing of relationships does this. Medical and health needs do this. A poor work environment does this. These are all, yes, they're material things, but they're all real. There's also spiritual wilderness, spiritual dryness, seasons of putting off family worship in the home. Ignoring time of prayer and being in the word, neglecting our duty and call to love our neighbors, 
all for the sake of comfort. These are wilderness seasons that we are brought into to test us. What kind of wilderness are you in right now? What is that wilderness exposing in your heart? Bitterness? Fear? Anxiety? Self-dependency? Maybe apathy? Christians are not meant to live on those spiritual high mountaintop experiences forever. Like Jesus' baptism, we have those highs and then we're brought into the reality of the Christian life, which is going through the wilderness in a state of dependence on the Lord. More often than not, we will be walking through wildernesses, places of crisis, places in which our loyalty and obedience will be tested. One pastor made the sobering realization about this, really saying this, if if you aren't experiencing these kinds of testing wildernesses, if, if your life is just filled with comfort and ease, you don't have worries or anxieties, maybe you need to examine whether you have a relationship with this Lord to begin with. Because the Father leads us into the wilderness like a loving father who wants to discipline and strengthen and grow his children. The father loves Jesus and led him into the wilderness. And he loves you. What is your wilderness exposing today? That's the wilderness. Second, let's look at the temptation Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. That is the the devil, the evil one, the father of all lies. And we shouldn't write this story off in our scientific, naturalistic, materialistic world today and just say, oh, this is a cute uh, fairy tale that we should derive some kind of lesson. You know, no way that Satan is really real and did this. You know, it's difficult for us to grasp the existence of Satan or of, a, of an evil, unseen, but real force. But that is the biblical understanding from cover to cover. We are introduced to what, what Scripture calls this spiritual realm that kind of exists in parallel and on top of and in between the physical realm. It's this unseen, unnoticeable reality that's in the spiritual realm. And in that spiritual realm, there are both good and bad forces at play. There are both positive actors and negative actors that that get their hands in the workings of our seen reality. I don't have enough time to really talk further about this, but I think that C.S. Lewis appropriately helps us understand it when he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, to to think that's not real at all. The other 
is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That is to make them much more powerful and bigger than what they really are. Satan is real. Let's acknowledge that. Let's not obsess over it. He is real, though. He's working against God. He's working against God's people. He's working against the will and plan and redemption of God. That's exactly what we see him doing here with Jesus. Satan has come to tempt Jesus away from his father's plan. You see, back at his baptism, Jesus came up to John. John was baptizing in the Jordan River. He was bringing about renewal, revival. We talked about this last week. And Jesus comes down to the water, and he says to John, John, I need to be baptized by you. And John protests. He says, no, Jesus, you have it backwards. Uh, I need to be baptized by you. And one pastor preaching on this passage just summed it up so beautifully and simply. That I, it's so beautiful. He says, in essence, John is saying to Jesus, Jesus, no, I am not going to baptize you. You need to baptize me. Why are you coming to me and doing what I need to do to you? Why are you asking me to do what you need to do? Why am I standing in your place and you're standing in my place. To which Jesus then responds, we need to do this now to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is my mission. This is why I have come. It must happen. I have come to stand in your place so that you can stand in my place. I have come to substitute myself for you. I have come to live the life that you have been called to live but I will do it perfectly. And I have come to die the death that you're supposed to die, and I will do it completely. I have come to be a substitute. That's my plan. And what's fascinating is this plan, this mission of Jesus, that the Messiah, the king, would come to be a substitute, this is right there in their Old Testaments. They just didn't have eyes to see it. When the voice from heaven opens up and comes down and says, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, there are two Old Testament passages joined together in this declaration. They would have been aware of it when they heard it. The first comes from Psalm 2. The second psalm, a psalm of the, the royal kings of Israel, the sons of David, how the Lord is going to raise up king after king to sit on the throne. And in Psalm 2, the Lord declares, this king is my son. And the second comes from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is the beginning of a section of Isaiah called the Servant Songs. These three songs, uh, the Servant Songs, they're about a man, a figure, called the Servant of the Lord. 
And it says, this servant of the Lord will have the spirit of God descend on him. That this servant of the Lord will be delighted in by God. But then the songs continue and they say, this servant will suffer for his people. This servant will suffer in the place of these people. This is the song that we read this. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The servant, the one whom the Lord delights in, is going to suffer, not for his own sins, but as a substitute for the sins of others. So right here in the baptism of Jesus, we see the whole plan of redemption on display. God's mission to save this world is by sending Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the conquering one who will rule forever. He has come and he will bring deliverance, but it'll be deliverance through death. It'll be conquering through crucifixion, salvation through suffering as a substitute. Friends, this is the very thing that makes Christianity different from the rest of the world. Every other religion of the world, every other founder or leader or ideology says this, here is what you need to do in order to be saved. Here is the experience of self-abandonment that you must give in order to have peace in the universe. Here's the cause that you must champion if you want to be accepted by society. Here's what you must think in order to be enlightened. Here's what you must do to be saved. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, my mission, my plan, my salvation, I will take your place. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You can't do anything. I will do it for you. I will live for you. I will die for you. I will be everything you have been called to be for you. I will do everything you have been called to do for you. And at the end of the day, I will stand in your place at the cross and you will stand in mine. Do you want that? Do you want that freedom? Do you want that salvation? Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me and all of this is yours. Believe in me and your sins are gone. Believe in me and I will bear your shame. Believe in me and I will cast away your guilt. Believe in me, and I will carry you home to my Father's house. Galatians 3 says that in Christ, we are all children of God through faith in him. Believe in Jesus. You will be sons and daughters of God Most High. Jesus says, believe in me. All this is yours. Believe in me, you will be delighted in and loved and treasured forever. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus came to be 
your substitute. He has come to live the righteous life we could never live. He has come to die in our place so that if we believe in him, we could be called children of God. See what great love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And so we are through Christ. Let's get back to the temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and he begins to tempt him right here at the core of the gospel. Satan's temptations are not about food. They're not about the praise of man or honor and glory. They are about the very heart of the gospel. Look at them with me. The first, turn these rocks into bread. Satan is saying, Jesus, do you really trust your father's plan to provide for you through this whole thing? Do you really trust that if you obey him and if you're loyal to him and if you're dependent on him, that it'll work out for you in the end? Don't you know what's coming for you? The second temptation, Satan brings him to the top of the temple in front of the crowds of people, and this is the temptation. If you jump, the angels will bear you up and you will float down and the people will see your glory and they will make you their king. Jesus, do you want to be made king quick? Do you want to be made king without going to the cross? Thirdly, Satan brings them to the top of the mountain. They can peer out over all of human history, seeing the nations and their glory. And Satan asks Jesus, do you want the nations to bow down before you? Do you want to rule over them? Do you want to have dominion over it all? You can have this without suffering. You can have all of this without suffering for their sins. All you have to do is bow down to me. Do you catch that? Satan's temptations strike at the heart of the gospel. Jesus, do you trust your father's plan? Jesus, do you want to be made king quick? Jesus, do you want the nations without having to suffer? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You do not know the plans that my father has given me. The only other time Jesus says that when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, but don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. Peter says, get behind me, Satan. Satan's temptation is always striking at the heart of the gospel. This is what he does to us. He strikes at the heart of the gospel. He says to us, is the gospel really true? Is the gospel really true? Are you really a child of God? Does the Father truly love you? This has been Satan's attack from the very beginning. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, Eve is standing there before the tree, and she wants it. And Satan comes to her and says, did God really say you can't have this? If God really loved you, he would let you have this, right? If you were truly his child, why would he keep this from you? 
If you are really the object of his affections, why would he deny you this pleasure, this comfort? You see this even in this temptation with Jesus. He starts out the first and second temptation like this. If you really are the son of God. He's trying to cast doubt in Jesus' heart that the gospel isn't true. Here's what it looks like in our life. Something's missing. A promotion that you want you don't have. A pay raise Maybe a child you want and don't have, a relationship that you want and don't have. Something is lacking and you realize something is not the way it's supposed to be. My life would be better if I had this. Satan comes to you and whispers in your ear, why would God withhold that from you? Doesn't he love you? Look at your life. Look how good you've been. Look at all the ways that you've served him. Look at all the ways that you've loved him and yet he still hasn't given you this. He must not love you. He doesn't want you to be happy. You deserve this. Or maybe you're walking through crisis, a wilderness, and uh, the things that we were just talking about, and your mind immediately begins to think, what did I do wrong? What, What sin did I do to cause this pain and punishment and wrath? We begin to believe the whisper of the enemy that says, If you lived righteously, then your life would be pleasant, but because your life is taking a downturn, you must have messed up. What is wrong with you? But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that we are indeed sinners. We have messed up. We do deserve punishment. Yes, we do deserve his wrath, but God... But God, being rich in his mercy because of his love with which he loves us, although we are dead in our sins, he has made us alive in Christ. So that through Christ, who is our substitute, who lived for me, who died for me, because of him, I am now a child of God, the beloved child of God, the delight of God, and he is a good, good father. He will never withhold anything from me that is for my good. Satan's one main attack is this, to convince you that the gospel is not true. It comes in many forms, and it looks different for all of us, but that's it. Are you really the son and daughter of God? Are you really his delight? Are you really his treasure? The answer, brothers and sisters in Christ, is yes. Do not believe the lies. Finally, let's look at the victory, and I'm going to do this quick. Let's see how Jesus responds to Satan's temptations, and let's be encouraged ourselves to do it too. He responds, I think, in two ways, and we see them in the baptism. He responds with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God. I don't have time to go into length about how the Spirit of God works in us to bring about victory over temptation. That's a whole other sermon itself. But let me just show you, Jesus is hungry. He is in a state of dependence. He can't trust in his own strength. He was in this whole ordeal demonstrating 
dependence upon God. Dependence upon a strength and power and an energy outside of ourselves. I think this is why the Spirit of God is necessary for us to overcome spiritual crises or temptations or whatever wilderness we are facing. We cannot look inward upon ourselves and find strength in ourselves to overcome. But the good news, friends, is every one of us believers in Christ has had the Spirit of God poured out on our heart, the helper, the one who helps God himself, he is with us. So we are to be dependent upon him. Second, we see Jesus again and again, not only depending on the spirit of God, but using the word of God. Interestingly, every quote that Jesus gives from the word of God in defense against the devil comes from the same story. Deuteronomy 6 through 8. It's almost like Jesus is out in the wilderness meditating on this story, meditating on when God's people were in the wilderness, meditating on the idea that God's people were about to cross over the Jordan River and go and take the land and conquer and be God's people. He's meditating on this story and he's using it, applying it to his own life. He's saying, what can I learn about God and myself and my current situation from God's word? He's not just using a verse here and there and proof texting. He's taking this whole story of Israel wandering through the wilderness and applying it to his situation. He is deeply meditating on the whole passage of scripture, learning from it, applying it to his own life. I'm all for taking good verses and putting them on posters on your wall, but our dependence on the word of God cannot stop there. We can't just memorize a verse here and there. We need to know the word of God. We need to drink deep from it. It is a source of the knowledge of God's love for us. We have to apply it to our lives in prayer We have to let God's word speak through his word, not in an abstract, mystical way, but through deep meditation and study. I think all the women in the Revelation Bible study going on right now can can advertise that this is so good. I, I have heard from no less than four of these women that this has been such an encouraging season of studying God's word. It has been challenging. It's long, it's hard, but it's been meaningful and powerful and insightful. We need to get into his word and study it and learn what his word says. Learn how he says it to us. Learn how to apply it to our lives. Not just from the mouth of Jesus, but from cover to cover. The whole story showcases the love of God to us, the plan of redemption, the mission of Jesus to be our substitute. It is there on every page, just waiting for us to see. 
We won't see it unless we're drinking deep from the word of God, meditating on it, learning from it, studying it, and applying it to our lives. Friends, moments of spiritual crisis and wilderness are coming for us. Maybe you're in there now. We are going to be led into the wilderness. We will be tested. We will be tempted to believe that the gospel is not true. We will be tempted to believe that God doesn't love us. We will be tempted to believe that we deserve more. We'll be tempted to believe that we're not God's children because of our sin, because of our failures, because of our faults. But we will overcome that. We will overcome that testing, not in our own power, not in our own strength, but by being dependent on the Holy Spirit and being rooted in the truth of his word. His word that says Jesus is our substitute. He stands in our place. His life for ours, his death for ours, so that we could stand in his as the beloved children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our Father. You are. What great love that you have for us that you'd call us your sons and daughters. We are so quick to forget. We are so easily persuaded that that is not true. Would you, Spirit, remind us again and again and again, we are yours by our substitute. Would that warm our hearts and comfort our souls, especially in the midst of the wilderness? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.